0: 6-8 with me. Know, O people, the Lord has told you what is good. And this is what he requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we um, walk into this place and just see everyone here, we are reminded of how good you are. We are reminded of who you are we are reminded of your love and would you just say thank you for being who you are we pray for trey as he brings today's sermon that you speak through him and that your spirit lead us that your spirit teach us and may he teach us to love one another in jesus name we pray amen Does anybody like riddles? Yes, okay. I'm gonna open up with a riddle from C.S. Lewis. He, uh, I don't think Memphis is a riddle, but I'm gonna use it as a riddle. This is from C.S. Lewis's work, Mere Christianity. There's one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loves when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people, in his words, except Christians, ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I've heard people admit that they are bad-tempered, that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink or even think, or even that they are cowards. And he goes on later to say, there is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves and the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Anybody got a guess? Pride. C.S. Lewis goes on to say, pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love, or contentment, or even common sense. Saint Augustine said, if you ask me what the essential thing in the religion and discipline of Jesus Christ is, I shall, say, I shall reply first, humility. Second, humility. And third, humility, you guessed right. I was reading uh, online, of I think it perhaps was a, a sermon and uh, they reference this story as one old monk told a group of nuns whom he had thought had grown full of pride because of the vows they had taken, vows of celibacy and chastity. You can be saved without virginity, but you cannot be saved without humility. I used to think I didn't struggle with pride. <laughs> Getting you now, good. I used to think I didn't struggle with pride because I was very insecure. I still can struggle with insecurity. I was very worried about what people thought. Honestly, I didn't really think that much of whether or not I was prideful, but whenever it would come up in something of someone saying, oh, I struggle with pride, I was like, I don't. I'm really insecure about myself. I don't think that highly of myself. I've come to realize that I have struggled with pride my whole life. It has just manifested in different ways. The opposite of pride is not insecurity. The opposite of pride is humility. I would argue, is a deep form of security. And we'll unpack that in a moment. Uh, We are in our third week of our series on whole-bodied faith. Faith not just with your mind, but with your body. Faith that doesn't just pertain to what happens when you die, but faith that matters now, pertains to how we love God with all that we are and love our neighbors as ourselves. And if you don't remember anything else that I'm going to say today, I want you to remember this from Micah 6, 8, about what the Lord requires of you and what he says is good to do what is right, or as other translations would say, to do justice, to love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. I invite you to repeat that with me. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. So this passage in Micah 6 takes place in a court. It's like a court scene. Uh, Verses one through five of it, which we did not read, establish God as being above reproach, and Israel as guilty. And so then we get into this. What does God require of you to do justice? As Johann Ferreira in uh, in the Asia Bible commentary wrote that the word justice is a very important term in the Old Testament. It occurs 424 times and covers all aspects of human conduct, whether in business, courts, family, friendships, strangers, or society. So you're getting the picture, to do justice pertains to all aspects of human conduct business, courts, family, friendships, strangers, or society. And one of Micah's big complaints was that the rich, particularly Israel's leaders, did not afford justice to the poor. The Bible Project defines justice as concrete actions taken to correct injustice and create righteousness. And as we talked about a couple weeks ago, justice can be retributive, but more often in the scriptures, it's restorative. It aims to do things like seeking out people who are being taken advantage of and helping them but also changing social structures to prevent injustice. And the reminder for, the simple reminder, without diving too much into this part of the text, to do justice is a reminder to people like me who like to think about justice, or like to idealize justice. The instruction here is to do justice. Certainly that pertains, I would think, to the proclamation of justice and God's good news, but also pertains to actually doing justice. And so for some of you that are like me who like to think about justice and what justice might entail, do justice. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago with Amos chapter five, where it talks about letting justice roll down like waters and um, I think I'm paraphrasing, and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. And we talked about our tendency as followers of Jesus for our hope for renewal of the world, that there are two predominant temptations. Some of us hope for the renewal of the world with the king, without the kingdom, And some of us hope for the renewal of the world via the kingdom without the king. What I mean by that is that some of us hope for the renewal of the world basically by God saving and rescuing people out of earth and that the only purpose is like the spiritual side, that the earth side doesn't really matter as a means to an end. But you cannot have the king without his kingdom. Then I would argue perhaps the more dominant temptation for a lot of us nowadays is to seek the renewal of the world or the kingdom of God without a need for the king to long for justice, to long for renewal, to long for joy, to long for peace, to long for human flourishing, but without any need of the king. But you can't get the kingdom of God without the king. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago in regards to the systems that we have been uh, indoctrinated with without even thinking about and how they have actually led us to not get the things that they said they would give us. And we'll unpack that more today. So we talked about that with Amos five. And then last week we talked about loving mercy with the story of, jo- of Jonah. Uh, depending on your translation, you might see faithfulness in there, to love faithfulness, to love kindness, or to love faithful love. Which one is it? Yes. It's a Hebrew word that's in there that has connotations of kind of all of those things. This, as the Asia Bible commentary points out, the second aspect of good life is to love mercy which describes one's inner demeanor towards compassion as well as outward acts of kindness. They go on to say the word translated kindness occurs 255 times and is one of the most significant theological words in the Old Testament. It is perhaps the attribute of God that is most emphasized in the Bible and is closely related to God's covenant faithfulness. You can see that in Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Nehemiah, Ezra, Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, Micah, so on and so forth. As with justice, the Israelites must reflect God's kindness in their relationship with others. However, in the instructions in Micah in the 8th century, Israel lacked kindness. Society became callous and mean. We see this in Jonah, for example. The stress in Micah is that people should love kindness. In other words, uh, some of us, uh, we talked about this some last week with the story of Jonah, might be more prone to being, if you remember the story that we talked about last week with the prodigal, uh, the two sons and the father, the older son who was really judgmental towards the younger son and towards the father for bestowing mercy upon the younger son. Some of us will do the right things or do merciful things, but actually in very bitter sort of ways. And so the invitation for us is not only to do mercy and to be nice people, but to do it begrudgingly or with strings attached or to do it uh, kind of resentfully or to hold it over people's heads. Hey, do you remember when I? But to love mercy. Why? Because God is merciful to do justice and to love mercy, to not do it spitefully, but to love Mercy, And we talked about this need for repentance for those of us that run away from God and those of us that seem to try to stay in line with God but actually are not walking with God because we are more consumed about what I get. And we become arrogant and prideful and self-centered and we belittle other people when they receive mercy instead of loving mercy when it is bestowed because we realize that we did not deserve God's mercy but he gave it to us. And out of an overflow of God's mercy and love towards us, we then are merciful towards others. And what I want to focus on today is this, this last phrase. Walk humbly with your God. Walk humbly with your God. Walking signifies trust in the scriptures. Walking, in, or walking with God, walking in his ways. It's a life of trusting relationship. As that Asia Bible commentary pointed out, it means a spiritual orientation or a heart commitment of love and trust towards God. I get this picture of God walking in the garden in the book of Genesis. I get also this picture of, in Psalm chapter 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. It's an inner heart posture towards God, to walk with him. It's a commitment to walk in love and trust with God. It's a whole life orientation, a whole-bodied faith. And what I really want to dive into today is this notion of humility as being central to faith. And I want to make a couple statements about that first. First, it feels remarkably ironic to be preaching about humility, encouraging us to be humble, as if I have that much to offer around being humble. Uh, I'm reminded of, uh, I think perhaps it was the Apostle Paul talking about him being the chief of sinners. Uh, When I'm talking about humility today, I hope it comes from a posture of, this is something that I deeply struggle with on both perhaps the arrogant side and on the insecurity side of it. And I'm preaching this as hopefully another fellow sinner and practitioner in pride. (laughs) Saying, here's what I found to be helpful and what I've been learning about God in the process. Secondly, another example of humility that I found uh, in going through this text. I came into this text uh, with an idea of how I wanted to preach the text. Which always, if you're going to read the text, sets you up for a humbling experience. I went into it planning on talking and preaching about humility. And my plan was I wanted to do a word study. I love word studies and like looking at themes and scriptures. I mean, if you've heard me preach before, you've probably heard me do some of that. And so I went in and I used my Bible software to look at this word humbly and see how it was used elsewhere. And quickly I found it was only used one other place. It's like, well, this is going to go great. And some people in commentaries I was reading made the case that it should be translated wisely or circumspectly or scrupulously. And I didn't even know what scrupulously meant. And I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I'm still not 100% sure. Scrupulously. Perfect example right there. But others do say humbly. And and I think just the nature of... Now I understand it more scrupulously. Wow. Thank you, Carly. Keeping me humble and blushing. The other place this uh, text or this word is used, though is in Proverbs 11:2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but wisdom is with the humble. It's not that humility is not talked about in the scriptures, it's just that it wasn't as much this word. From my understanding when I was reading commentators, it wasn't that it did not refer to humility, but they argued it referred to that plus like wisdom or something along those lines. And sc- sc- scrupulousness, is that a word? Scru- sc- scrupulosity. And so admittedly, I just felt humbled uh, as I was reading that. And I was like, oh, shoot, where am I going to go? Because I, uh, you know, eventually, you know, through God leading me and then also perhaps through stumbling into it, kind of used Micah 6.8 as our framework for this series, at least the f- first few weeks to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. And I was like, this is going to be great. Talking about Amos, do justice, talking about loving mercy with Jonah, and then Micah 6.8, humbly. Talk about humility. And I was like, okay, man, maybe my whole series is just like, what am I going to do with this? And then in addition to that, uh, some of y'all know, I like hurt my back, tweaked my back yesterday. And so, or Friday, I'm not entirely sure how, but as I was like finishing up stuff for this, I was literally like laying out on my back and, which is not a very comfortable position to type uh, and work on things. And I just, laying down, trying to work on sermon stuff just feels like a very humbling experience. (laughs) Um, So I'm coming into this text hopefully a lot more humble than I initially went into it. But the command here uh, to walk humbly, I would argue, does uh, pertain to what we might call humility. One of the commentaries I read, I pointed out that this contrasts with the rich and powerful who walk haughtily in other places in Micah. That those who walk humbly with the Lord put aside their own agendas and make the Lord's concerns the center of their lives. You can see this in 2 Samuel, 2 Chronicles, Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, Zephaniah, and other places. And they wrote that the last of these commands, the walk humbly with your God is what supplies the motivation and power to do justice and to love mercy. And walking humbly with your God is something that you can't do when you're prideful. So what is pride? because we use pride in a lot of different ways. you know. I take pride in my work, I take pride in what I do, I take pride in my family. Um, I'm proud to be a part of this church, which I think generally is a good thing. What does it mean when I'm talking about pride? You might refer to it as some form of self-sufficiency, self-centeredness, self-importance, or self-exaltation in relation to God. One person I was reading pointed out that towards others it can be an attitude of contempt or even indifference towards other people. It is an elevation of the self. And it makes sense that this is something that most of us struggle with. Uh, one, because I think it's just a natural, fleshly in, inclination that we have. But also for most of us, as I think I've shared this before, but uh, a number of people, I think Mark Sayers is who I'm thinking of, who's a pastor in uh, Australia, make a case that in the West, religion has dethroned God, and said our religion now has enthroned the self. In other words, what that means is that our primary life orientation is not towards the other, towards God, but instead is toward the self. And so we can see this manifested in a number of, of sayings that I'm not going to totally unpack right now, but just follow your heart. Do what feels good to you. Um, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. Is that Shania Twain? Maybe? Somebody. Okay, no, nobody knows. It's somebody. Man, I'm just getting humbled. Cheryl Crow, thank you. I'm getting humbled a lot today, so um, this is great. This is going, going exactly like I hoped it was going to go. But it makes sense, right, that, that we have grown up with this like, enthronement of self. And this is not just for people who might not be Christians. This is also for those of us that claim to follow Jesus that our primary way in which we walk with Jesus is not about like what this text says, which is God has told, the Lord has told you what is good and this is what he requires of you. It is predominantly about self. Our questions are more, how do I be a good Christian Then how do I follow in obedience to God? Our questions more become about discovering my purpose, which I think is a great and wonderful question and I want us to talk about, than what does God require of you? Not what would God prefer if you do what would it be nice if? What does God require of you? We make it about self and we elevate ourself that our primary way in which we, in some ways make sense, like that we relate to God is about ourself. I think these were. Uh, this was between A.W. Tozer and C.S. Lewis. I don't remember who said, who said what, um, but one of them, I think it was A.W. Tozer, said that what, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I think it was C.S. Lewis who wrote back something to the extent of, see how well my memory serves me here, that I read in a periodical the other day that the most important thing about us is what we think about God. By God himself, it is not. Because what God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. And so part of the invitation towards humility is to learn to trust God's voice over our own. Not just when God's voice makes sense to me, but when God's voice does not seem to make sense to me to trust him above my own voice. James chapter one talks about how each person is tempted when they are lured and enticed by their own desires and desire when it is fully conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. This elevation of the self promises self-fulfillment but actually leads towards death and destruction. Pride, I would argue as others would, is the essential sin top tier, I would argue you can make a very strong, persuasive case that every other sin, whatever you wanna label it, stems from pride. Jonathan Edwards, who was a famous revivalist, and also I was talking with Israel earlier and even thinking about humility once again, uh, also was like a slave owner. So he's a very much a mixed bag and has some very deep sin in his life, which also there's deep sin in my life, so I'm commenting on sin while having sin. He wrote concerning a revival in Northampton, Massachusetts in 1737 that pride is the main handle by which he, the devil, has hold of Christian persons and the chief source of all the mischief that he introduces to clog and hinder a work of God. Spiritual pride is the main spring or at least the main support of all other errors. Until this disease is cured, medicines are applied in vain to heal all other diseases. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, wrote that unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. And then he writes this it is the complete anti God state of mind. It's the complete anti God state of mind. Going back to that riddle, pride is one of those vices that we like to call out in someone else but are really hesitant towards calling out in ourselves. And I wonder if partially it's because we're really afraid of being humbled. I think a lot of us associate humility as being a bad word. Don't pray that you'll become humble or that God will humble you. And honestly, I don't like praying that one. That one's not. I'm just kind of expecting that that one's going to come. But what if actually humility leads to a deeper form of security? I want you to think back, if you remember the story in the beginning of the Bible, when God made humankind, he saw that it was very good. And then what happened when Adam and Eve sinned? They became ashamed. Shame entered as a result of a prideful statement, that I get to determine what is good or bad. Did God really say? Did he really say that? To trust your voice over God. And, and as I said earlier, I used to think I was not that prideful. I didn't think about it that much. Um, but when I did, I was like, that's not something I struggled with. Can I offer a gentle perhaps word of um, encouragement and challenge to us? I think sometimes, if not oftentimes, perhaps all the time, so working on that, that part. Our insecurity is just pride. Now, insecurity is the result of sin. I read an article that was very helpful, talked about insecurity both as sin and a form of suffering. Because in a very true sense, because we still live here on earth, I will not be, feel, fully secure in Christ and who I am. Sometimes sin is something you do. Sometimes it's something that's done to you. Sometimes sin is manifested through the world that we live in. But for me, in my life, and I have good, re- I have good reasons for a number of my insecurities, I think, It came back to trusting my voice over God's. I remember when I was in uh, East Africa on uh, like a summer long internship, uh, one of the guys who was leading it, we were talking about how to find our identity in Christ and security in Christ. And was making a case that we are, if we follow Jesus, then we're saints. We're adopted into God's family. We are deeply loved and forgiven and all this kind of stuff. And I remember telling God I didn't buy it. And I thought that was a very arrogant stance to take. To Not mine. I thought mine was great. I thought mine was humble. Just being honest, I did. And I thought, man, you saying you're a saint, what the heck? It's a story I've shared at different times, but God really wrecked me. And one of the things that my um, friend said was, who are you to think that anything you've done could be any more distracting than what Christ did on the cross? If I would reframe it, I might say, who were you to think that anything you've done could be any more powerful than what Christ did and did on the cross? Who am I to have a stronger say over who I am than the one who created me? Called insecurity, but oftentimes, at least for me, it was pride. And sometimes that repentance, uh, repentance, you know, means a turning, asking God to also not just save me from it, but also to heal me from it. To heal me from the wounds that were inflicted or that I feel that make me believe these lies that are not true about who I am pride always comes back to self. So how do you know if you are prideful? First question, do you think you're prideful? If you answer yes, yes, then you are. Good job. Second question, do you think you are not prideful? Yes, you are prideful. Some might argue, like C.S. Lewis, those who think they are not prideful are probably most the most prideful. C.S. Lewis also points out that pride is essentially competitive towards other people. That pride uh, might manifest itself in you. I'm gonna give you some uh, personal examples. Uh, I am competitive. I just am. Uh, that sounds like me justifying sin. Not all of the competitiveness is bad. Right? I don't know that it's necessarily bad if you're playing a game that you would like to win and that you would prefer to win over lose. Maybe it is. Still working on that. God's got a lot of work left to do in me. But I will say... In me, when I'm playing a game, which is so silly that I even feel this, and it feels silly admitting it, but it's true, when I feel a game, and all of a sudden I am losing, or I'm not going to win, and something about my self worth comes up. When I'm playing a card game, or I'm playing spike ball, or whatever, it makes me think like, "Oh man, I can't play this sports game, so I'm less of a man." Sports game? That all? <laughs> what are sports? <laughs> That's pride because I'm attaching my worth to something that I'm doing. And my worth rides on how well I'm performing. If my worth is attached to whether or not people respond well to a message, I'm missing out on what God actually has for me. C.S. Lewis, talking about this competitive nature, wrote that other vices may sometimes bring people together. You may find good fellowship and jokes and friendliness amongst drunken people and unchaste people, but pride always means enmity. It is enmity, and not only enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. How many of you, when you notice somebody on social media having something that you would like to have, you find yourself labeling reasons why they shouldn't have gotten it? Or wishing that you'd gotten it instead? Me. Me. It is this enmity, and not only enmity, enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. And this is what is so sinister about pride. Pride promises this like, form of self-exaltation and self-fulfillment. But doesn't it make sense if pride is essentially competitive in, nation and, in nature, and we have been indoctrinated with pride, that we feel increasingly lonely? Why do you think it is that we all struggle so much with feeling alone and like no one understands us or no one gets us? if we've been indoctrinated where the self is on the throne of our life, well, yeah, there's only one seat there. Frankly, that seat doesn't belong to me. Belongs to the one true king. And ironically, as Jesus says, those who try to, maybe paraphrasing, those who try to save their lives will lose them, but those who lose their lives for my sake will find them. The last will be first and the first will be last. It's a reversal, it's actually through laying down our life that we find it. Pride is so sinister. C.S. Lewis again, um, I'm referencing his book, Mere Christianity, it's a very short chapter that he talks about like the great sin, pride. I think that might be the name of the, great sin might be the name of the title. It's like pages 121 through 129 if you wanna go read it. It's very short, but very powerful. He said, in God you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. He wrote this, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. I would have probably phrased it, pride makes it difficult to know God, but that's, I don't think, strong enough. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God because if you are on the throne of your life, you can call it God, but you're really the, you're really the God of your life. And my worry, my fear, my concern is that a lot of us have put ourselves on the throne of our life and we've claimed it to be actually God. We've Christianized it, anglicized it, whatever language you want to throw around it and said that this is God, but it's not. We've put ourselves on the throne. And there's, a, there's like a constant war in our flesh for who's sitting on the throne. I think it was Paul who talks about uh, not doing what he wants to do and doing what he doesn't want to do. It's a war that's going on. So it makes sense that you even, as we're talking about pride, or probably part of you is like, yeah, that's something I deal with, but also like, eh, I don't really want to do anything about that because that does not sound very fun. It makes sense. So a couple things that pride is not. This is a word that we throw around a lot. Pride is not enjoying a compliment. We're meant to build up one another and encourage one another in love. Trouble comes when you find your worth in the compliment or whether or not you received it. But I deeply believe that God wants the church and the people of God to be a people who are encouraging to one another and building each other up. As a person who is a words of affirmation, love language person, I think compliments can be very good and are important for the body of faith. The problem becomes when I only find my worth in what someone says about me. I think the best compliments reminds me, remind me of who my worth comes from. I see Jesus in you in this way. It reminds me of who, where that comes from. Secondly, uh, pride isn't just being happy with God, what God has done in and through you. Uh, Paul talks about like being uh, boasting in his weaknesses and, and also like speaks rather uh, proudly of the things that he has accomplished through the power of God. The difference is when it becomes about the self and it goes back to yourself. The other thing that pride is not, pride is not uh, being secure and confident in who God has made you to be. Sometimes people use the phrase be humble to really uh, elevate their own pride and arrogance. They tell other people to be humble because they don't want them to talk. Or as a way of protecting their pride and ego, this particularly um, often happens towards uh, women and women with stronger personalities, where pride is celebrated oftentimes in men as ambition. With women, it is said you are being prideful or arrogant or strong-willed or other words that I'm not going to say up here. Might I just offer, in this passage, it says to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Last time I checked, doing justice doesn't usually involve just laying down involves using the voice that God has given you and responding in confidence in that way. Pride sometimes is an uncalled out sin in men. Pride also with that is not avoiding standing up for what is right. That we are to be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger for the anger of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God as James chapter one says. But also when I read the prophet, the prophet's, And when I read Jesus' life in ministry, there were times when he was like clearly misunderstood and people left. There were times when he did not defend himself, but there were also times when he flipped over the tables. And discernment comes in and figuring out when am I supposed to flip over the tables and when am I supposed to take it? But when someone says, I think it was Jasmine in our group the other day when you were talking about um, being humble, just like encouraging someone else to be humble. If you're recognizing someone else is prideful, that probably also means that you are prideful. And this is a predominant sin in the church and a predominant sin, I think, that we're seeing play out, uh, particularly in white evangelical spaces uh, right now. And it's easy for me to be prideful about it and be like, oh, not me. And honestly, I kind of wanted to start out by saying like, oh, I'm sorry for them. But uh, I want to instead say, I'm sorry for me. I'm sorry for ways that I make things more about me than about God. I, I don't want our church to be people who are self-centered. I want us to be so centered on God that we can't help but love him and love other people. Um, And the answer to this, this issue of pride, is, well, the Sunday school answer, it's Jesus. And humility, not insecurity, is the opposite of pride. Security, or humility, I might say, is security in who we are and who we are not. St. John Christosom described humility as the mother of all virtues, Jonathan Edwards, once again, mixed bag, said, well, which I am too, uh, said, we must view humility as one of the most essential things that characterizes true Christianity. You may be saying, ha, how? Because certainly that's not what I see. It was modeled in Christ. Philippians chapter two talks about for us to have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had, not counting equality with God as something to be grasped or taken advantage of or used for his own selfish gain, but instead humbled himself, became a slave and went to the cross on our behalf. Humility is not insecurity. Humility is security, being totally secure in who we are in Christ and who we are not. I've heard it said referring to, I think this may have been referring particularly to pastors and um, like not finding your worth in a, like a sermon. Like or like how a sermon goes, because it's a. I mean, to be honest, like preaching is kind of a vulnerable thing to do, uh, because you spend this time ideally with God during the week, uh, and then you lay it all out there on Sunday. Uh, and so, if you have critical feedback, wait until like Tuesday to give it to me. Just usually that's probably a better route. Just being honest, um, because you pour out all these all these things. But humility is not just saying like, oh man, I'm awful. Oh man, everybody's better than me. Oh man, you know, whatever. Humility is where, as someone I heard say, successes don't go to your head and failures don't go to our hearts. Where my worth isn't found in, all oh, people think I'm great, so I get puffed up, puffed up. Or, oh no, that was awful. And the message becomes not, that sermon could have been better. This message becomes, I am awful. Maybe y'all don't struggle with that as much as I do, but that's something I really struggle with. When we are not humble we are more afraid of what people think about us than we are concerned about obeying God. When we are not humble, we become more concerned with our own accolades than seeing the kingdom of God being enacted on earth as it is in heaven. When we are not humble, we become competitive at other people's successes rather than rejoicing in the ways that God is using them. So what is the right view of self? You might say small and infinitely loved. As one commentator put it, we are God's creatures, small, finite, dependent, limited in intelligence and ability, prone to sin, and soon to die and face God's judgment. Uh, at the last church I was a part of, we had an Ash Wednesday service, and we would take ashes and put them on people's foreheads or hands, depending on what they wanted, and we would say, remember that you are dust, and to dust you will return. It's a very humbling thing to do. It's a very humbling thing to do to like, look in a bunch of people's eyes of all different ages and stages and say that. So, this part is true. We are infinitely small. Uh, if you struggle to say that you have limitations, whether that's with your time, whether that's with your skill set, might I suggest that you probably are prideful? I could say the opposite too, because I'm just convinced that everybody's prideful. So, if you're here, welcome <laughs> to the club. But also at the same time, you are made in the image of God, meaning you have worth. You're worthy of dignity, respect, and value, no matter what you've done, where you've been, whether you're poor or rich, whether you are sick or healthy. And if you follow Jesus, you are adopted into the family of God, deeply loved and cherished, a beloved child of God. And as uh, the word spoken over Jesus at his baptism, that this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I believe those words pertain to those of us who follow Jesus, that God's being pleased with us if we follow Jesus is not based on how good of a sermon I preached, it's not based on my ministry. It's not based on how good of a dad or husband I am or am not. It's based fully upon who he is and what he has done. Pride is sinister because it promises an elevated view of self and actually leaves us without it. But humility, actually, I would argue, leads us to a deeper form of confidence because we're able to act confidently and live confidently and stand up for justice and love mercy because we're not really worried about what other people ultimately, what people think, because my worth doesn't come from that. The more humble I become, the more confident I become in who God is and what he's doing. I'm quite confident that God can use my babblings to speak to people. It's funny. I mean, uh, you ask most preachers, and they will tell you the messages that you think are awful are the ones that people come up to you after and were like, this was really helpful. And the ones that you think are baller, like amazing. I don't know why I said baller. That was weird. Uh <laughs> No one says anything. I heard a story of one preacher wanting to grow in humility where he uh, intentionally preached a bad sermon and he said it was very humbling because people come up to him after and told him how great it was. <laughs> like intentionally tried to preach a bad sermon. Which is just funny, I think. Um, so we need humility to recognize who we are before God that we do not deserve his love or grace, but yet he has offered it to us freely. And because I'm confident, that's not based on me. I'm able to have humility and a humble sort of confidence to step foot into what God has called me to do. And so we need humility with God and humility with others. I want to offer these things. um, I'm going to invite Carly to come back up. Humility with God looks like remorse for sin. Repenting regularly. Might say also, if you are not repenting regularly, you are struggling with pride. Also, if you are repenting regularly, once again, I think everybody struggles with pride. If you are repenting regularly, you also still struggle with pride. <laughs> but re- like having humility looks like being remorseful for your sin and asking God to convict you and change your heart. It also looks like worshiping him, realizing how little you are in comparison and worshiping him. And oftentimes, and I'm not, totally, I'm not against worship songs that make the focus... Uh, that like talk about us and how we are, but sometimes our worship songs become more predominantly about us than they are about God. Worship is primarily centered upon him and that changes me. So we lead to worshiping God. And then also humility looks like not just talking to God or talking about God, but listening to God. I don't want my public room with God, what I say to people about God to be richer than my private life with God. I don't want what I pour out to be better than what I receive. I want my inner life with God to be what overflows into the outer life. I don't want to be a whitewashed tomb to reference Jesus' words to some religious leaders. Humility with others is also important. This looks like also being remorseful for sin, being quick to apologize, even if the other person is wrong too. I'm sorry. And meaning it and repenting, not just saying it like and not meaning it. It means moving past the need to be right, especially over dumb things. I struggle with that one. I'm just going to be honest. I really do. Moving past the need to be right instead of focusing in on partnering with God and making things right. Means being willing not to get the last word and willingness to submit to someone else's preference over your own. So here's my challenge for you as we wrap up. Ask God to humble you. I'll be honest, I'm even saying it. I'm a little scared of that one. So we'll start here. Ask God to reveal pride in you. Where you are prideful now. Perhaps places that you don't think you are prideful. I sense, as I was working on this sermon, I sense that some people are hesitant about even this because you're afraid of what might happen if your pride is removed, because you have found your worth in these other things. I think this goes back to what I shared a couple weeks ago. Our problem with repentance for a lot of us is that we don't trust that God is actually good and that he actually has what is good for us, that there actually is a better way for us to live. And pride, our self being on the throne of our life is, I'm not the best king. I can list a bunch of things I'm not good at that would make me a terrible person for that job. But God is really, really good. And so the invitation is to ask God to reveal pride in you and ask him to change your heart and to turn you towards him. As I shared in our, we had a members breakfast yesterday. There's something that happens when we repent that involves turning our face to God that really just makes space for God to speak to us. And so I encourage you, if you're feeling hesitant about admitting your pride to God or asking him to do it. Once again, that's probably just an indication that you need to do it. So allow God to do the good good work in you. Will y'all pray with me? God, thank you so much for your love and grace and kindness. Thank you for being with us here. Thank you that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. Lord, I even thank you uh, for a lot of us that uh, Perhaps we're even sensing that our ways of trying to find worth in and of ourselves and our successes and our grades and uh, what people think of us or how we look or whatever thing um, that we're sensing that those things aren't working out that well for us. Lord, and we bring those to you. Um, Lord, I uh, I pray for those like me in the room that can struggle with uh, arrogance towards other people who are Christian too. I pray that you remove the logs in our own eyes. Help us to have a gravity of understanding of our sin, um, to to know you better, uh, to love you more, and help us to walk in obedience uh, with what you have called us to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, One last thing. Um, My problem with pride is not just that it's uh, bad, but I'm deeply convinced that pride keeps us from knowing God more. And it keeps us from worshiping him and it keeps us from encountering the presence of God in a really beautiful way because we're so turned in the reason why I want to be more humble is not just to be a better person so that people will think I'm humble although admittedly that's part of it I want people to think that about me just being honest But the reason I want to be more humble and pride to be removed from my life is because I want more of God I want more of his presence I want to know him more and I want his name to be the one that is lifted up and so I encourage you as we sing this song to, to pray and ask God to humble you. Hey, thanks for watching the service. We pray that it blessed you and helped you grow closer to God. If you are in the Nashville area, we'd love for you to join us sometime. If you're not in the Nashville area, we'd love to help you get connected with the local church if you don't already have one. But we pray that God blesses you this week and that he grows you closer in your relationship with him and with your community, that he uses you in a powerful way to be a vessel of his good news in everywhere that you go. May God bless you.